Did you ever hear the tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise? I thought not. It's not a story the Jedi would tell you. It's a Sith legend. Darth Plagueis was a dark lord of the Sith, so powerful and so wise he could use the Force to influence the midichlorians to create life. He had such a knowledge of the dark side that he could even keep the ones he cared about from dying. The dark side of the Force is a pathway to many abilities some consider to be unnatural. He became so powerful, the only thing he was afraid of was losing his power, which eventually, of course, he did. This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Hello. And welcome to Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy in our very own galaxy, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Stephen Kent, and this is a Beltway Bantha interview. Today, I am so excited to be joined by special guest Betsy Hodges. She's the 47th mayor of the great city of Minneapolis, Minnesota, and quite the Star Wars fan. We got connected on Twitter uh, just because I happened to see uh, her banner photo, which featured Kylo Ren and Rey locked in battle in The Rise of Skywalker. And I knew that this was someone who needed to be on this show to talk about Star Wars. But this was a really special episode because it went somewhere that I have never gone before, really, as a host or as an interviewer. Betsy, when I reached out to ask her about doing the show, she said, yes, I'd love to do it. And she forwarded an article in which she wrote about her Star Wars fandom for the MarySue.com. And this article was about how Star Wars saved her life. And she wrote in this piece about how Star Wars helped her survive and weather sexual abuse as a child. It's a tough story, and it was admittingly tough for me to navigate as an interviewer. I found myself more off balance um, and just in a place where I, I didn't really know at some points where to go just because, you know, it's a subject in which... You really should just be listening. And Betsy did a great job not only of sharing her story and her truth as a Star Wars fan, but then relating that out to the rest of the world and what all of that means, what her experience means, and what she thinks Star Wars means and what we need to learn from it. And it's about redemption, y'all. I mean, this is something that we come back to often on this show, but in a way for this episode that we've never really gotten to that subject before. And I hope you'll hang in with this interview through the end because it's really the end where I think we really get to the real crux of the issue. Um, Betsy will share some of her story. We'll also talk about some of the ins and outs of her fandoms, favorite this, favorite that, favorite planet, favorite moment. Uh, And then we will move on to the meaning of Star Wars as Betsy Hodges sees it. I want to apologize going into this episode for a little bit of the audio quality. It turns out I was having some connection and uh, gear issues on the day of taping this, and I don't sound as good as I normally like to sound. So, you know, bear with me here. It's mostly just kind of a volume inequity problem between myself and Betsy Hodges. But all things considered, a great episode and a great guest interview. Here we go. And joining us now is Betsy Hodges. She was the 47th mayor of Minneapolis, Minnesota, and she currently serves as an advisor to cities and mayors to support progressive policy and improve equitable outcomes for people of color. She is a fellow with the Atlantic Fellowship for Racial Equity and currently or recently served as a residential fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School Institute of Politics. She's written about politics and race for CNN and the Huffington Post, and she joins us today on Beltway Banthas to talk about her Star Wars fandom and journey into politics. Betsy, good morning and welcome to Beltway Banthas. Good morning. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. 
I'm very excited to have you. You have such a unique story and such a visible fandom and track record in politics and progressive politics in particular. And it's just really exciting to get to hear about all of that directly from you. Um, I just feel really privileged to, to have this time to speak with you during quarantine and while all this craziness is going on. So just thank you again for working us into, uh, into your life at this time. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. If there's anything I love, it's Star Wars and uh, talking about the history of it in my life and politics. So this is the right place for me. Well, I, I came across you um, on Twitter. This is where I find a lot of potential guests for, for Beltway Banthas because there's just so many politicos out there who love to wear their, their fandoms on their sleeve. And uh, you and I follow and like to engage frequently with a Star Wars fandom leader named Brian Young out in Salt Lake City, Utah. And that uh, conversation that y'all were having on Twitter um, led me to check out your profile and just see that you had a Kylo Ren and Ray background on Twitter. And then, you know, it's just kind of all, uh, all downhill or actually really uphill from there, um, just in getting connected with you. So tell me a little bit about you. I will say for folks who are from this area, I was born in Baltimore and lived there for exactly three weeks before my family moved away. And um, we ended up in Minnesota where I've lived most of my life. And, um, you know, I had a lot go on uh, when I was younger and I got sober when I was 19. And if you had asked me at any point in that part of my life, if I would have ended up in politics, I would have laughed in your face. If I were to go back in a time machine and tell myself, someday you're going to be the mayor of Minneapolis, I would, I might have passed out, but I know I would have laughed either way. When was that first step, you know, when you, I mean, we'll talk a little bit about your background, but I'm curious about that, that like moment of, I, I should, I should do this. I should get involved in public service and run for this office or that office. There were two different moments. There was a moment when I was in grad school because I, I went to study sociology in part because I wanted to learn about the world so that I could figure out how to make it better. Um, and there was a professor there. His name is Joel Rogers. Uh, currently, I partner with him. And one of the pieces of work he does at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, actually, who made the case that local government was a really powerful place to do social change work. And I took him at his word. And so I started volunteering on local campaigns, uh, city council, school board. When I moved back to Minneapolis, instead of doing my dissertation, which is what I was supposed to be doing, I was doing political work. I was working on campaigns. I ended up working at a political organization called Progressive Minnesota, now known as Take Action Minnesota. And I was approached by one of my dear friends. I remember it was October of 2002, mid-October. Uh, he approached me and he said, hey, would you be willing to have lunch with me? There's something I want to talk to you about. And I said, okay, great. What do you want to talk about? He said, well, I will tell you, but you have to promise me that you will have lunch with me anyway. I said, okay. He said, I want you to think about running for city council. And I was stunned and I laughed, right? Because at any point before I ran, if you had told me I was going to run, I think I would have been incredulous. But I told him, okay, we'll have lunch. And uh, in December, because it was an election year and in December, you know, and we were political people, so we didn't get together until December as it happens. And between the time he asked and the time we got together, uh, a couple things, well, one main thing happened was Senator Paul Wellstone's plane crashed and he died along with a bunch of other really wonderful people who we all miss uh, at the end of October. And um, I remember just that day, I was in the car driving to Arkansas to help my grandmother move out of her home. And um, I remember thinking, man, if somebody I respect as much as I respect Scott, Scott Dibble, the friend who asked me, thinks that some of what Paul took on for all of us should come on my shoulders, I at least have to take him seriously. And there was also another woman who died on that plane. Her name was Mary McAvoy, and she had been a mentor of mine. She had really helped me think about the world and my place in politics. 
uh, in general, but especially as a woman. And I knew that if Mary knew that I had been asked to run for office and wasn't taking it seriously, that she would haunt me for the rest of my life. She was a very uh, spirited woman from Tennessee. And so I decided to take him seriously. So by the time we had lunch that December, I had an open mind and I was willing to think about it. And eventually I did run for city council in 2005 and I won. You won, you served until 2014. Uh, and then after that, you became the mayor until 2017. Sure quite, quite a journey. You mentioned um, sort of your, your view of progressive politics and local action. Have you always had the perspective as a progressive uh, that the place where you could make the most impact was in the local community and in your own city? I've always, or I guess maybe it's, it's sort of characterized often that um, the left in, in American politics tends to be very focused on federal action, broad nationwide change, and it distracts them, I think, from, from local issues where they can make more tangible uh, changes and outcomes. Uh, my entire adult life, uh, has been focused on local government and making change at the local level. I am not somebody, ironically enough, now that I live in DC, I am not somebody who has spent a lot of time focusing on the federal level. I uh, really think that local government, city councils, county boards, school boards are the places where we can make the most difference and the most inroads, in part because it requires face-to-face -face interaction. We have to connect with one another as human beings to do effective work at the local level. And one of the biggest challenges we face as a country and as a culture is that there are more there are more forces working to pull us apart than there are forces that are working to bring us together and the local level is a powerful place to come together and you can also get a lot done uh, if you look at the right part of the reason they had such success for so long is because they focused on the local level they built a farm team by taking over county boards by taking over city councils and school boards uh, they built a farm team, but they also got a lot of policy done at the local level that we are still grappling with, you know, 30, 40, 50 even years later. And so I took a page and was inspired by Joel Rogers to take, a, take that page and say, you know what, this is the place to work. And I have never regretted it. And I've never looked back. And even after leaving office, my work is still mostly focused on cities and local government. Yeah, I mean, that's really what has defined uh, most of your career and your byline has been focusing on cities and mayors and making changes on, on streets, you know, and even on your, your Twitter profile, you know, it's it seems to me that you supported Mayor Pete during the Democratic primary. Is that correct? That is true. That is yeah. true. And, and that sort of rings, I think, as a continuation of that trend. Is that sort of the thinking that drew you towards Mayor Pete? in the democratic field as somebody who understood the importance of your perspective on politics? Absolutely. I think the experience of mayors in this country is invaluable. Uh, politically, there are very few executive offices. Mayor's one, governor's one, and president is one. And I think that having been a mayor and the effective mayor that he was made Pete a really great candidate. Um, and I looked at all the people who had served as mayor. Uh, I looked at all of them. Now, full disclosure, Pete is and Chastin are also friends of mine in real life. Uh, and so it was very fun to support someone that I both believed in as a candidate, but also knew and believed in as a person. Now, I don't want to deprive you too long of Star Wars chatter. So I guess the best thing I can do for a segue is to ask, did you see and how and how much do you tend to enjoy Rogue One, a Star Wars story? Oh, of course I saw Rogue One. And of course I loved it. What a fantastic film it is. I, now I, I think of that movie often, like when I when I think of political engagement and activism, um, mostly because I think all of Star Wars, and I'm sure you know this, has like such a, a call to action, sort of hero's journey message throughout, and Jen Urso's to me, yes. is the most articulate entry into activism of any Star Wars story that has ever been told. It's that moment where she's with Saw Gerrera and he says, you know, you can stand to see the Imperial flag fly. And she says, it's not a problem if you don't look up. 
And I, I'm wondering, you know, mm. what was sort of your interpretation of that moment and where do you see in your own life, like that moment where you realized that you had to actually um, engage in politics and not wait for someone else to, uh, to take on the challenges? Wow. Um, I would say the most transformative moment for me along those lines was April 29th, 1992, uh, which is the night that the uh, Los Angeles uprisings were happening after a jury acquitted the officers who beat Rodney King. And I was working overnight in a facility for people with major mental illness because up to that point, I thought I was going to be a psychologist. I graduated college. I graduated college and with a double major in psychology and sociology and wanted to change the world, but I was sober myself. I wanted to go into addictions counseling with people. And I I, I arrived at 10 p.m. and I did what I did with the residents, you know, hung out with them and then had to count pills and then they all went to bed and I basically watched TV all night. And at that point, Dennis Miller, uh, the comedian who is now very conservative at the time was very progressive. And at the time he had a short lived late night television show. And I'm also a huge fan of comedy and I loved his show and I turned it on and he was white as a sheet, which if you could see that on TV, it must have been very profound. And he had arrived at the studio between the moment that the verdict uh, was read and when the uprising started, because most people didn't film their shows that night, but he did. And he didn't do a monologue. He just said, I can't believe that just happened. And, I, and my stomach just sank and I thought, oh no. And I went to CNN, which at that time really, um, it was one of the first times CNN was there, any news channel was there to cover something this endlessly. Yeah, uh, and nice. all night I watched uh, the coverage of the verdict and the uprising. And I remember I was just crying and I had this thought that, um, it was mostly white people who had done the bad things that uh, people were having uprising about, but that was white people and I am white. And um, that that reflected badly on me, that that said something that I couldn't fully articulate at the time, but I knew I was onto something, but that was really about me and my people in a key way. And that I am white and that I had a voice that white people might listen to in a way that, that often we won't listen to people of color or indigenous people. And that, that what I needed to do and what I got to do was to uh, go work on, go work with white people around ending racism and creating a better world. Like it was literally that night. Yeah. And that has guided everything I've done since. It's why I went to graduate school in sociology instead of psychology. Uh, it's why I work, got into political work. And eventually it was why I ran for mayor. I have had, this is, this is, this is interesting because I haven't thought about it in exactly this, this way, but I, I come from libertarian politics and part of my own journey has been what was described after Charlottesville as the libertarian to alt-right pipeline. Um, I have seen over the course of my 10 years or so being engaged, appealing off of people over the mm -hmm. course of this period of time who kind of come up in conservatism or libertarianism, sort of, you know, small government minded ideas, and they get peeled off by far right kind of internet dwelling um, enclaves and they change over the course of time. And it was not until Charlottesville that I realized that there was a real problem, like a deep problem that needed confronting that was not isolated, but was in fact nationwide. And that my own role in doing libertarian writing and, and policy uh, and outreach, like that I had a responsibility to mm. take on more of that problem um, and not ignore it because that pipeline, in fact, turns out it was real. Um, and the only people who can stop the bleeding and the, the, the movement 
of people from those mindsets to extreme uh, political viewpoints are in fact like us, like the people who are sort of, you know, of that same political persuasion who can speak the language to those people, but stop them from going off the brink, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you have a responsibility for those who you can relate to the best. Um, and just sort of like putting that off is, is looking away from the problem. Um, it's just sort of believing that any injustice that happens is not your responsibility. Yeah. And, and, Right. You are situated well to have a voice with people that they can hear at a moment when they need, may need to hear your voice as opposed to the other ones whispering in their ear. Right. It takes a deep level of self-awareness. And I think, and I think some extent of courage for even, even someone in your, your position to go like, I'm going to try to work to change the hearts and minds of white people. <laughs> and I'm going to do that. Uh, I'm going to do that in, in local politics uh, in Minneapolis. I mean, that's, that's quite a journey to take. Um, I, I really admire it. And, and just in terms of like, you know, the star Wars heroes journey, you know, that call to action is very real. And it, it does remind me very much of, of Jen Erso and Rogue One. Well, I want to ask you a couple round Robin things here on star Wars. What is your favorite planet in the star Wars universe? Tatooine. Tatooine, I like it. What is your favorite scene in Star Wars? One that always moves you? It may be um, it may be the end of Return of the Jedi, when the fact that Luke didn't lose faith in Anakin Skywalker uh, is borne out when Darth Vader actually comes to his aid. You and I share yeah, the same. Talking you about and I share the same scene. Yeah. <laughs> just talking about it gets me a little choked up. I yeah. I always uh, I never miss an opportunity to talk about uh, Darth Vader's change of heart in the moment when he realizes that he needs to jump in and get rid of Palpatine. Is yes. my is my favorite moment in all of Star Wars, and it it's not just like cool. It chokes me up. It's it's so visceral. But ooh, anyway, so favorite song in Star Wars. What's one of the scores that you just always enjoy? Um. Well, we're my husband and I are watching the Clone Wars right now, and. So so that version of the Star Wars theme is pretty delightful. That's awesome. How far along are you in the, uh, in the Clone Wars right now? We just finished season two, episode 14. So we're in the Mandalore series in season two, which I, which we have to keep pausing so I can look things up. Excellent. I, I recall you uh, you writing once that within an hour of losing your mayoral election that you said, well, I can finally now watch the Clone Wars. Yes, <laughs> that's true. It took so, a pandemic. It took a pandemic. But I will tell you, uh, I married the right person because when, you know, the stay at home thing started, my husband sent me an article and suggested that we watch the entire Star Wars canon in what I call Galaxy Order. Um, and so we watched um, The Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones. Now we're watching the entirety of Clone Wars, and then we're going to watch Revenge of the Sith, and then we'll watch uh, Jedi Rebels, and then um, go to Solo and then Rogue One. Ooh, well, you will have a, a spectacular journey. Um, maybe uh, you got a lot to get through, but eventually if you can make it to Star Wars Resistance, also another really good animated series. Yes, we're, my commitment is to watch all of it because I've seen the movies, but I haven't seen the animated series. Well, uh, I'll tell you, in Clone Wars, I'm just so excited for you because you're in for such a roller coaster of great political content. I mean, it's it's really the best of the best when it comes to the government uh, and political worldview of Star Wars that you just like, you don't get blatantly in the movies, but in the Clone Wars series, it's everywhere. Is the Jedi mind trick immoral? I think it's the equivalent of asking, is power immoral? And I don't think it's inherently immoral. I think how you use it. That's fair. That's fair worldview. Final question for you. Child monarchs on Naboo, a good (laughs) or a bad thing? (laughs) Child monarchs on Naboo. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah. Um, 
I'll remain neutral on that. Um, I, I mean, to be fair, Queen Amidala was elected, so you know it's okay. That's who they want, and you know their queens are elected, so fair enough, right? There, there's a, a state legislator somewhere in this country who's 18 years old and doing some. <laughs> I think in Georgia, actually. All right, I want to back up a little bit and, and kind of go over who you were and how you became Betsy Hodges of today. You had an experience where you wrote about uh, watching Solo, a Star Wars story. And at the end of this movie, you're sitting in the theater and it gets to the moment where Han hears about a job that is available on Tatooine, some big shot gangster needs something done. And you wrote about feeling the, the call back to Tatooine in that moment that you could, you, you could sort of taste the air and you could feel the sand. And it brought you to tears uh, watching the end of Solo. And I honestly don't hear that much about Solo because it's definitely an underrated Star Wars movie. Um, and you, you shared tears of gratitude in that moment. You were, you, were, you were weeping because Star Wars meant something to you in that moment. I guess that you hadn't felt for quite some time and you wrote about it in the Mary Sue in September, 2018, a piece called How Star Wars Saved Me. Um, you were abused as a child and Star Wars offered you a, a sort of salvation. I, I don't want to tell your story for you can you share with us what you wrote about in the Mary Sue? I can. And the first thing I will do is a little ad for Solo. Uh, it is underrated and not enough people have seen it. And I suggest people watch it and maybe watch it again if they've seen it only once. Um, but I did have that moment in the theater because uh, Han is offered this job on Tatooine and it's this, I was immediately thrust onto Tatooine. Like I could feel the heat and the sand and the wind. And I could see, um, you know, uh, Luke's house, you know, and his aunt and uncle's house. I could just, um, I was just there. And my story is I, um, I was, I'm a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Uh, and it happened over the course of many years uh, by people who weren't my family. Uh, I like to, you know, be specific. It wasn't my family because uh, I'm close to my family. Um, but it happened over the course of many years. And it started when I was eight years old. And that is also the time when Star Wars came out in the theater. And I am someone who remembers a world without Star Wars and I, I have a world with Star Wars. I remember when there was a time when there wasn't a Star Wars movie. Um, and I remember my father taking us to the theater to see it and standing in line for a really long time. I don't remember if it was opening day or not, but knowing my dad, it may well have been. And I remember seeing it in the theater. I was very young. And so the things that stuck with me, I remember vividly the, um, the chess set on the Millennium Falcon. Yeah, uh, that very much struck me as a young person. And I remember just the vibe of it and the feel of it and knowing I was seeing something new. But then what happened was my father is an early adopter. He got the first VCR in the neighborhood. So for people who don't know what that is, it's the thing that you could play movies on. The first thing you could have in your house that you could play movies on at your own discretion before DVD players, VHS. And he had a bootleg copy of Star Wars. I have no idea to this day. I have no idea how my father got that copy of Star Wars, but this was like 1978, 1979. He had a VHS copy of Star Wars. Um, unless you were alive at that time, you have no idea how uh, impossible it was to see Star Wars not in the theater after it was gone. And I, I watched it every day. <laughs> Remarkable. 
Oh my God, every day. And, um, you know, kids from the neighborhood would come knocking on the door and they'd say, can we watch Star Wars? And we'd be like, sure. So we'd have like neighborhood watches of Star Wars all the time. And it gave me a picture because uh, I never told anybody until after I got sober, I never told anybody about the abuse that happened. I really believed as a child, and I was made to believe, uh, that anything I cared about would be endangered if I let slip at all that something was happening, uh, which is a lot to put on a kid and uh, was difficult to deal with. I did it. Uh, you know, I did my best to protect the people uh, that I loved, and I did that successfully, um, and even, you know, and I didn't talk about it until I was in my early 20s. But what I did, so I didn't have people who could help me get through. But what I did have were these movies. What I did have were certain elements of the books that I read and the movies that I saw and the TV that I had. I had those things to help get me through. And, you know, Star Wars is on top of that list, along with a couple other things, you know, Wonder Woman being one of them. It's rare to hear in in your early answers, what is your favorite planet? It's rare to hear Tatooine thrown in there because it is represented and cast as the planet in which you would want to escape. Um, it's, It's sort of made to be that desert wasteland and it is supposed to represent, I think, you know, just from the the storytelling aspect, wherever you are, that you don't want to be anymore. Um, and I think the only person I've ever heard say that their favorite planet is Tatooine and someone who has an emotional connection to it is you. And, and there's this, uh, this, this kid's animated series called Phineas and Ferb, where these two adventurous young boys also just sort of dream of the blank slate, which is Tatooine, because anything is possible there. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, that's, that's pretty remarkable. Have you thought about that at all over the course of your life? Like why Tatooine still represents sort of a, a feeling of hope and has not been a stand-in for the desolate world maybe in which you, you grew up? It may. I will note, um, I know people have all kinds of feelings about Rise of Skywalker. No, Star Wars fans, never. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One of my policies about Star Wars is I never complain. Mm. Um, I will note, like for me, that moment at the end of Rise of Skywalker, when she returns to Tatooine. Yeah. Mm. First time, first time. I love it. I love it. I, I will say I, I admire that policy. And it's something that I had always had in place up until this year. I've been really struggling, Betsy. My goodness. Yeah. I've, I've, uh, I've had a, a self-enforced rule about positive fandom for many years now and I'm sure my listeners are aggravated with me at this point because I've, I've been I've been struggling for the past year um, to just like remember gratitude right and just yeah. remember remember what Star Wars gives me and just to just to revel in it no matter what whether or not it fits exactly what I need at a given time it's Star Wars it's always been there for me always yeah. yes same here and I will offer to fans that her return to Tatooine in that moment there is yet another redemption arc. And it's a redemption arc for that place. Um, I think one of the reasons I'm so attached to it is because that's where we, that's the, first of all, that's, that's the first place we see with, with Luke. Um, It's that first moment of having a vision of someone who dreamed of something bigger Uh, who dreamed of something better than what he was in. And there he was right there. And he got it. He got it. I mean, some days I'm sure more than he wanted, but he got it. And um, to me, Tatooine, maybe it's desolate, but it's also a place where dreams are are born. And, uh, you know, the series returns to it many times in many ways. And I think it's not just as a hive of scum and villainy, but um, as a place where if you need dreams to be reborn, you, I'd go to Tatooine, right? There, there, there's a good opportunity there for anybody. Yeah. Betsy, in reading your piece in the Mary Sue, 
I had a thought about what you wrote and, and you spoke to your favorite moment in Star Wars as well about how Luke, you know, stuck with Vader throughout uh, the return of the Jedi and pursued that good in him. You wrote that it matters a lot to you that Luke could see the good and otherwise yes. kind of clearly ostensibly evil people. Is that, is that connected to your experience as a child and as someone who is abused? My, my limited understanding of experiences such as that is that it is a intense roller coaster of positive, negative emotion, of, of not knowing which way is up and which way is down and, and not knowing how to relate to your abuser. And I wonder if that's where that comes from for you or, for, or if it's unrelated. Oh, it's absolutely related. Um, there was a point in my mid-20s uh, when I saw the movie um, Dead Man Walking mm -hmm. and the work of Sister Helen Prejean, who works with people on death row, believing that they are worthy of life regardless of what they've done. And I remember that movie just helped me release whatever I was carrying. I had this realization that the, the, the people who abused me, uh, uh, the people who sexually assaulted me, they weren't doing to me anything that hadn't been done to them and that they were human beings before they were perpetrators and that that humanity was still in there. Um, and that, my life would go better if I remembered that first about them rather than what they did. You know, as Brian Stevenson says, you know, uh, everybody is more than the worst thing they've ever done. And the relief I felt, uh, the burden that I was carrying, that thinking that there were bad people in the world like that, the relief that I felt in seeing them in their human complexity and that they were hurting me because they'd been hurt, et cetera, that was enormous. And I think Star Wars, I think, prepares anybody for that realization and that revelation because I really understood more when I watched Star Wars after that that the burden Luke would carry if he really just thought Darth Vader was evil and walked down that path the burden he would carry would be too heavy to bear um, and in fact Darth Vader Anakin Skywalker had taken on that burden himself uh, that he had he had worn his bitterness as a mantle and uh, it was too heavy a burden for him to bear. He relinquished that at the end. Um, and it's just a better way to live. It, well, it, it is. It creates and more options. The hurdles you faced in surviving abuse and entering politics, just a nexus of fear, anxiety, and negativity. <laughs> it's, 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 what, yeah, it's, what, it's what Luke had to confront on Dagobah in the cave for one of his tests. Mm -hmm. um, he asked uh, to Yoda about the dark side cave. He said, you know, what is in there? And Yoda said, only what you take with you. Yes. And I was going to ask if you had entered that cave yet in your life, but it sounds like you have your own journey in, in confronting the idea of redemption and um, letting go, I, I suppose, of, of certain aspects of darkness that can rule you. Um, it sounds like you did enter that cave and face that um, to try and grab self-acceptance and self-love, uh, but first you had to let go. Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I honestly, I think anybody who's gotten sober has faced that, you know, you have to walk into that cave and look at yourself. Anybody who's working a 12 step program, for example, does a fourth step where you do a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself. And uh, if you're doing it right, you are Luke in that, in that part of Dagobah, you are in that crucible and you are being revealed. You're not being created, you're being revealed. And what do you do with the revelation is the question that comes after. Uh, who do you choose to be uh, given the information that you now have that is unrelenting reality? And those moments are powerful. And 
I feel for anybody who hasn't managed to have one. When I think of your dark time, I suppose, beginning um, with abuse in, in 1977 or around the beginning of the Star Wars saga and then Empire Strikes Back comes uh, around in 1980, the, the entirety of the Dagobah arc is, is sort of littered with a lot of this advice, which I suppose is coming at a really tough time and you don't really come to understand for many, many years. I mean, one, one of the other lessons that Yoda shares in that moment, which I think has to be important to recovery, says you must unlearn what you have learned. Mm -hmm. uh, this quote came to mind when I was thinking about your story. I mean, because geez, I think it's, it's pretty well understood that abuse, like it comes with that internalization of a narrative and a false understanding of yourself, your yes. value, your purpose, and to enter, to take that and then to enter public life where there is tons of hate, judgment and intensity. Um, what did you have to unlearn from your earlier life to be ready to be Betsy Hodges today? You know, it was funny when I was in that period of time thinking about running for city council, one of my mentors asked me a question, which is a useful question in many settings. She asked me, what is the one thing that if it changed would make it more possible to take that project on successfully? And she was asking as a mentor and personally what I would need to do. And my answer was, I will need to learn how to withstand other people's disappointment more gracefully. And so I spent some time working on that. Um, maybe some people I think would call that getting a thicker skin. I would say for me, it meant relinquishing such an investment uh, relinquishing having more an investment uh, in what other people thought of me than I had in what I thought myself. And um, the ability to do the right thing regardless of convenience and comfort, uh, which at that point would be other people's approbation. And um, I worked for some time on that. Like I would do little things. I would make choices for myself that I felt were right for me that I knew would upset somebody else. It would be, they would be small. Uh, and that would often give me a lot of anxiety and I'd have to work through that and I would take on bigger and bigger until I felt more confident that I'd be able to do what I needed to do in elected life with integrity. Um, because really caring too much about what other people think and other people being disappointed in you um, makes it very difficult to govern with integrity if you are an elected official. Uh, if you can't, if you aren't, if all you want is to be liked by other people, first of all, it's a fool's errand because everything you do, people aren't going to like. Somebody's not going to like it. Somebody you care about is not going to like it. Uh, so it's a fool's errand to begin with. But it also makes you um, not have any integrity because you're trying to please people all the time, which isn't the same thing as trying to do what's right. And it makes you very easy to manipulate. Makes you very easy to manipulate. People pleasing can be very dangerous. It's oh yeah. One of my it's one of my bigger um, uh, flaws, which I, I struggle with. It's a source of great anxiety for me. Is wanting to make everybody happy. It plays out very much in my social media engagements um, and sort of an inability sometimes to like block negative people because I want to win them over. Right? Like you just spend yes. so much mm -hmm. energy um, and so much of yourself trying to win people who it turns out they're not actually worth, <laughs> they're not worth your energy and like your, your essence. Um, and it's tough to learn. And, and one of my greatest fears is that I have passed that on to my own daughter who mm -hmm. has a, a really bad relationship with disappointment and disappointing others. And I'm trying to change that in her, um, that it's okay to fail and it's okay um, to, to feel like you've let people down, but you don't have to like, you know, uh, try to fight that and try to make everything right because that is in many ways what opens the door to abusive people when they know that they can sink their claws into you because you're the kind of person who one can't say no or two cannot bear to disappoint another person even right. if they're hurting you um, right I, I worry about that a great deal well it might be fun to go mini golfing with your daughter and tell her that the goal is for her to not make any of her shots then you might actually have some fun playing mini golf. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. Oh, 
Well, that's it's been really a real pleasure talking to you about all this. And um, the, the one thing I wanted to end on, on, I guess, sort of a political note, because much of what we've talked about um, is the issue of redemption, uh, forgiveness um, in our own lives. Do you see a, a lack of forgiveness and a rise of vengefulness growing in our culture? I will say that on the political right, as someone who, whose entry to politics was working on criminal justice reform, my eye-opener was when I became a libertarian and started trying to change the minds of conservatives on that issue that they were addicted to vengeance. They were addicted to this idea that the justice system was naturally just and you do the crime, you do the time, it doesn't depend, you know, it doesn't matter what the amount of time was, it doesn't matter if it's a, a life sentence. Um, there was just sort of an addiction to getting even. And I always had, I suppose, isolated that view to the right for the longest time. And it's not until recent years where I've, I've realized and, and seen in my own life that that's a pretty wide and growing problem that we are becoming across the spectrum, just addicted to getting even, um, canceling people, uh, punishing people, never letting them grow. Is that something that you see? And, and how do you think that we can face it if it's an issue? Uh, it is something that I see. I was subject to it uh, as mayor. I had a very tumultuous term. I was uh, publicly shamed for two straight years on social media and other places. Why? Um, there were a few reasons for it. One is, uh, there, but the main ones were there were two very high profile officer involved shootings. Um, Minneapolis police officer shot and killed first a young African-American man named Jamar Clark and then um, a, a white woman from Australia named Justine Damon. And both of those were very charged. But I think more what happened was there were a lot of people who opposed my agenda and they used any of the tools that were available to them to oppose the agenda and they, they would pick them up and use them to try and limit my scope of authority and limit my success. And um, so, you know, that was a very potent cauldron of things people could pull from to really come after me. Some of it genuinely meant and some of it cynically meant. Um, but yes, I, I see what you're talking about, this idea that uh, there is no room for change or growth, that if somebody isn't in the right place to begin with, that it's impossible for them to get there. Um, the left has its own flavor of that. The right has its own flavor. Uh, the question I started asking people online who come at me uh, in very uh, mean ways or hurtful ways is I always ask the question, what is hurting you so badly that you think trying to hurt me will heal it? And I ask that question writ large for our culture because I, I think people who are looking for vengeance are feeling that they have been harmed and that there is no healing for them. And they are looking externally for a healing that isn't going to come. No matter how many people we kill on death row, it's not going to make people feel better about themselves or their world in the ways they're hoping. And, um, you know, as just one example of, of the example that you gave. And, but the culture is, is set up to foment this. So much of how we set up our systems rely on people being that separated from each other. And we can only be that separated from one another if we are separate from ourselves and the, and, you know, the humanity that we carry with us. We can only ignore it in someone else if we're shearing off pieces of our own. And that gets us back to Star Wars. I think the inherent lesson in Star Wars is... Um, you don't have to leave anybody behind and the biggest heroes know that and act like that's true. Betsy, we always like to round out here on Beltway Banthas. Um, 
tasked with giving everyone an opportunity to say what they're excited about coming down the road in their lives and in the world. You know, as a Star Wars fan, what I'm looking forward to is very personal to me, not something new on the Star Wars horizon, but rather the fact that I am finally watching Clone Wars, um, that I get to see the whole series now with that canon under my belt. I'm very excited about that. I'm also excited about Mandalorian season two and the what I'm hearing is Ahsoka is going to be on that season, which right, Rosario Dawson, that's very exciting to me. Um, and looking forward to the year ahead. Um, on a positive note, I think that much possibility is being created by what's being revealed right now by this pandemic about our culture and our systems. That much is being revealed about the United States. And while some of that will be used cynically, it also creates an opening for those of us who want to organize, for those of us who choose to make social change, to actually make some headway together. Bessie Hodges, Survivor. Mayor, activist, Jedi, thank you so much for coming on Beltway Panthers and sharing your story with us and talking Star Wars. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And that brings us to the end of yet another episode of Beltway Banthas. Our special guest today was Mayor Betsy Hodges. You can follow her on Twitter at Betsy Hodges. Yeah tough one. My Twitter handle is Stephen underscore Kent 89 and you can follow Beltway Banthas at Beltway Banthas and shoot us an email and let us know what you thought of the episode and the interview. What you liked, what you didn't like, what you thought could have been done better, what you thought we needed to go over but we didn't or just what you really loved about the conversation because I know I took a couple things away from there that will stick with me. You can email us at BeltwayBanthas at gmail.com and you will also get added to our email list where I I am now sending out great Star Wars and politics memes and important articles pertaining to Star Wars and politics fans that you should check out. So do shoot us that email so we can stay in touch. We'll be back the week after next with another topical episode where we'll be breaking down a subject within the Star Wars universe that pertains to politics, where we'll, you know, have some of our kind of guest commentary on those issues and do things like Bantha Fodders, because let me tell you, I've got some things to rant about, uh, which are definitely high on my mind, but we're going to save those for the next episode. So until then, may the Force be with you, always.